0: So here we are, let's, uh, let's see if we, we we're going to go to about 7.15, so a little less than an hour. So let's see if we can do a couple of, uh, couple of churches. So we've done Ephesus, we've done Smyrna, so let's pick it up at verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 17, and talk about uh, the church at Pergamon. So here's the opening, where you're going to find out the location of the church, and then who's sending it, which is going to be some image of the exalted Christ. So the opening is verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. So now what do we know about Pergamum? Uh, Pergamum is uh, another one of those cities I got to visit. And I remember um, there was an area we were visiting down below before we went up to Pergamum. And I remember thinking how high up Pergamum appeared from the valley down there. We were getting ready to drive up there, and it sits up high on a hill. I don't know, a thousand feet maybe. Uh, but it, it sits up there, and if you were coming at a distance, you can see the, the area at the top of the hill, sort of the apex of that hill, is where the some of the temples were. And um, there's one of those temples, particularly it's called the Zeus altar. That was a temple to the god Zeus. And it sat right at the top of that, uh, sort of a, a, an indention at the top of the at the top of the hill, that was Pergamum, and there was a fire or fires that burned in, uh, for sacrifice twenty-four-seven. So, if you were approaching the city at night, you could see those fires burning up on the hill at the top uh, of that. And I, I thought then that it might look like a throne. Um, the the way that altar it looked like an altar and then the fires burning it, it might look something like a throne. It is true that this city was the capital. Now Ephesus was the largest city but this city Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor and it, it wasn't because it had the highest population Ephesus had that. It wasn't because it was uh, the most uh, wealthy city Ephesus probably had that or maybe Laodicea. It was because of its religion now I've already pointed out You know, we talked about Smyrna as the first city to have a, God, a temple to the to the empire second city to have a temple to the emperor well Pergamum was the first city to have a temple to the emperor uh, and I've got some pictures uh, of myself there with it uh, it was built by Hadrian for Trajan who was now dead So it's the Temple of Trajan built by Hadrian. And uh, this is where you would go to worship the emperor. And it was the first of these um, emperor cults uh, in Asia. Uh, Also, there was the worship of pagan deities. So you had the worship of the emperor. You had the worship of pagan deities. I mentioned the Zeus altar. And it was a rather large, uh, the Zeus altar. And also something interesting about Pergamum. If you really want to see Pergamum, from the first century, and you want to see like the Zeus altar, you don't go to Pergamum. You have to go to Berlin, because in the 1800s, there were German scholars who were excavating and working around Pergamum, and for a small price, they bought these treasures from the Turkish government in the 1800s, carried them back to Berlin, and reconstructed the Zeus altar in Berlin. So you can go to the island of museum, the uh, Museum Island, it's called in Berlin. And, and you, the, the treasure there is the Zeus altar. Um, and so a lot of these, and, and it, the, the Turkish people there now, the people who like take you on tours and show you things, there's no laughing matter for them. They're not happy that the Germans took many of their treasures, and you have to go to Berlin now to see the ancient city of Pergamum. Um, but that Zeus altar uh, was important to the city. You also had the temple to the god Asclepius he was supposedly the son of Apollo and he was the god of healing and the symbol of the god Asclepius was a serpent and you'll, um, you'll see serpents associated with healing in the ancient world part of that was if you, if you were bit by a poisonous snake how were you healed of that? the same way you are now they take venom from the snake and, and, of course, that venom then provided the anti-venom that could bring about your recovery. Also, because snakes would shed their skin, uh, it was like an image of being reborn, rebirth. Um, you remember the story in Numbers about God's judgment on the Israelites and the serpents? Poisonous serpents were biting them and they were dying. Do you remember the way that God saved them? They took a serpent and bronzed it, and they had to look at the serpent, and they would be healed. So you can see some of that coming out even in Israelite uh, history as much as you see it in the pagan uh, part of history. And the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, the symbol of it is Asclepius' staff with a serpent intertwined around it. And you'll often see that associated with medicine and healing uh, even in our own world. So you had the worship of the emperor, you had the worship of pagan deities, and what was often associated particularly with the temple of Asclepius, which you can see if you go there now, the Germans didn't get it, you can actually see uh, it. Uh, it often involved eating, like you would eat meals as part of the worship of the deity, uh, and also sexual immorality, like I mentioned this morning about Ephesus, those were often sort of came together with the worship of these pagan uh, deities. So you had idolatry uh, through eating meat, sacrificed idols, and sexual immorality. And then it was also known for its love of learning. It had a library at the time when this letter was written, it had a library that rivaled the the library at Alexandria, Egypt, which was supposed to have like 250,000 volumes. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world like the Artemis temple at Ephesus. And uh, this might surprise you, but cities were in competition with one another over things like who had the biggest library, if you can imagine that. Well, guess who had the second uh, largest library in the ancient world at the time? It was Pergamum, uh, estimated at 200,000 volumes. So it was in competition with the library at Alexandria for the largest. Well, Papyrus was what people were writing on in the first century. That was the most common surface on which to write. And it's made from chopping down uh, papyrus plants that grew along the Nile. And you slice it very thin and you mush it together into a sheet. And then you take it like that. And then you glue another sheet like this and then another one like that and like that. And you press them together until it's thick enough to hold ink. And our earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament are on papyrus. We have about 121 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament on papyrus. All the early manuscripts are on papyrus. So in the first century, that was the writing surface of choice. It came from Egypt. Well, because of this competition with the library at Pergamum, uh, they stopped shipping papyrus to this part of the world so that it would slow down the growth of the library at Pergamum. So the people at Pergamum developed parchment or animal skin as a surface on which to write. And they claim, and I don't think it's contested, that this is where parchment or animal skin as a surface for writing was birthed out of the need to come up with something as a substitute for papyrus because the Egyptians wouldn't ship it to them anymore. So uh, ingenuity. And we have many, many, many more... Manuscripts of the Greek New Testament on parchment because it's so sturdy. Animal, It's animal skin. And you could scrape it and rewrite on it and papyrus is very fragile. So that's why we have a lot more manuscripts on parchment. So it ended up being very good for us having copies of the New Testament. So when you put all this together, I think what you find, and when you look around this city, when you walk around it for a day, like I, I was able to do, I think what strikes you is it's a city of idolatry, and here's what they worshiped. It's just the things I just talked about. They worshiped power by worshiping the emperor or those dead emperors. They worshiped sex uh, through participating in sexual immorality at these temple cults. They worshiped health. You had the temple to the goddess, a god, Asclepius. Uh, and they also worshiped learning. Sound familiar? I mean, I would say all of those things mark our own idolatries, uh, maybe in slightly different ways. So this is the city we're talking about, the city at pergamum And here's who's sending the letter. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, remember, you go back in chapter 1 verse 16 in his right hand he held the seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword and I, I think I mentioned this morning that that's, that shows the power of life and death if you had the sword you had the power of punishment of capital punishment even it can also have the image of protection for God's people that he has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth so it shows power It shows authority, it shows judgment, it can also show protection. Now what's the message? Verse 13. Yet I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So you get on the front end of this where Satan has his throne and at the end of his, uh, his affirmation of them, it's the place where Satan lives. So it's where Satan's throne is, it's where Satan lives. So what was it about this city that would cause him to say it's the place where Satan has his throne or the place where Satan lives? <coughs> and it would be exactly the things I just talked about. Approaching this city you see this Zeus altar. At the apex of the city, 118 feet, I think, long, 112 feet wide, 35 feet high, with these fires that burned 24-7. I think it would have looked like Satan's throne with the fire and the altar to Zeus. Another thing about that, this is just, I don't know that this matters for you understanding it, but it's fascinating to me. The Germans carried back the Zeus altar you can see it now in their model of the city of Pergamum. And uh, Albert Speer does that name sound familiar? He's one of the architects of the Nazi regime. Have you ever heard of the Zeppelinfeld that's that big stadium uh, that was built where you see like the youth of Germany go for these large gatherings where Hitler would speak. Well, that Zeppelinfeld was modeled, the stage where Hitler would often go to speak was modeled after the Zeus altar. Intentionally, by Speer. It became sort of the victory altar for the Nazis, was modeled off of this Zeus altar. So what would happen, kids could go to the museum on Museum Island and, on, a, on a school outing and see the Zeus altar there, associated with the city of Pergamum, and then go out to the stadium, the Zeppelinfeld. Um, and see Hitler step into that altar and speak. And I think that image of idolatry, uh, even more recent, um, it would be powerful. So I think this might have something to do with it being called the place where Satan has his throne. Um, I think also because it's a place where a Christian was martyred, Antipas. It's the only Martyr mentioned by name in the book of Revelation. And it happened here at Pergamum. And the fact that a Christian is murdered there speaks to the kind of persecution that's going on. And he says, my faithful witness. Remember the, what he referred to Jesus as in chapter 1, verse 5? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness? Well, now he uses that language to talk about Antipas. Antipas. And if it's the kind of place where a faithful witness, a martyr like Antipas would die, uh, then this is the place where Satan lives. Now the word for witness is martus. You transliterate it M-A-R-T-U-S. Of course we get our word martyr from that, but it didn't mean martyr originally. It just meant witness. But you can see how someone who bore witness to Jesus as Lord in in this kind of context that I've been talking about tonight would end up dying for their faith. And so dying because of your witness comes to be so associated with bearing witness that martyrdom, dying for your faith, is built off the word for witness. And this person, Antipas, is named as a martyr. Someone who bore witness and died as a result of it. And so in a sense, it's like John is saying, it's like Satan has established his capital there. It's the place where Satan's throne is. It's the place where Satan lives. Now what have they done in response to that? This is the affirmation. Yet you remain true to my name. Think of the temptation... To not remain true to his name, to not bear witness to the name of Jesus, to just blend in, worship the emperor, go to the Asclepius cult and pay your tribute there, and maybe privately then acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but not publicly. Think of the temptation to do that. And I'm not sure I can even identify with that kind of temptation because I've never felt any Threat because of my identification with Christianity or with Jesus. But you think about if you're placed in that kind of situation, the pressure there would be to just, well, I can can cling to it personally, but publicly I'm going to save my hide. I mean, what good am I to Jesus if I'm dead? I mean, there would be lots of ways to sort of justify maybe not being true to his name. And then he says, and you did not renounce your faith in me. And so they held fast to the name of Christ and they did not deny their faith in him. And this is his affirmation of them. So wouldn't you say that's pretty positive? Now, now let's see the correction. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now there's a name that doesn't sound very friendly. Balaam. Do You remember Balaam? You, remember, you might remember Balaam's donkey better than Balaam, right? The donkey talks. Um, and you know, there are other words for donkey. Uh, if you use older versions, older translations, you'll see um, ass is a word for donkey, you know. And in hermeneutics, I've often made a joke with my students about um, it's thanks be to God that he'll speak through unworthy vessels. In fact, sometimes he even speaks through an ass. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about Balaam's donkey. Uh, The donkey talks. But do you remember what's happening that the donkey talks? Balak is the king of Moab. You find this in Numbers 21, 22, 23. Balak, the king of Moab, wants to curse the Israelites. He's trying to destroy them. And so... There's just happens to be a prophet for hire. His name is Balaam. And uh, he's, he's offering him money to curse the Israelites. And so he says, well, I'll think about this. And uh, he ends up not doing it. But he's, he's riding on this donkey, and, and the, the angel of the Lord is standing in the middle of the road, and Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can. So the donkey does what any of us would do, seeing an image of the Lord in some way in the road, he goes off in the ditch. And um, so Balaam's trying to get him, and he's beating him and trying to get the animal to get back out into the road. And finally, the, the donkey says, you big dummy, don't you see that in the middle of the road? But that's not, why, that's not what's important here. Um, later, so at that point, he ends up not cursing the Israelites, but by the end, chapter 31, we find out that he's, he is working to show uh, Moabite men how to enti- or Moabite women, excuse me, how to entice Israelite men uh, and it involves eating foods that are idolatrous and sexual immorality. And so by, by the time you get to numbers 31, he is working in a way that is destructive towards the Israelites. So that's the Balaam. Uh, that we're talking about here. So, when he, it's like one of these names from the Old Testament that is an opponent of Israel. The name comes back to life now in some group that identifies with the Balaam, who was the prophet in the Old Testament, uh, numbered in the book of Numbers. And he mentions here who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, Not all have accepted this teaching. The problem is not everyone's gone over to this teaching of Balaam that probably involves idolatry and sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols and who knows what else. Not everybody's gone over to it. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, but all are guilty of allowing it to remain. It's not enough If there's a false teaching that were to break out in the context of God's people, it's not enough to say, well, I don't believe that, but they can. I mean, if you're talking about something that is contrary to Scripture that becomes part of the teaching of some of the people in the congregation, you can't just look the other way on that, even if you don't personally believe it. And it seems like the problem here is they're allowing it to remain. Then in verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, they're mentioned in in what he said to the church at Ephesus. Look back at chapter 2, verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's no Old Testament figure, Nicholas, uh, that you can say this is connected to that figure. But there is an early church father, his name's Irenaeus, who in his Against Heresies mentions the Nicolaitans, and he identifies the group with the Nicholas of Acts, chapter 6. You remember when the widows aren't all being cared for equally? You have to listen close to this now. You have two types of widows in the early Christian church in Jerusalem. There are the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christian widows. That is, they probably speak Aramaic. But they probably lived in Jerusalem their whole lives. They're probably not so Greek in the way they think or act, and they speak Aramaic. But you also have Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows, which may indicate that they used to live other parts of the empire. Their husband died. They came back to Jerusalem because they knew that the synagogue would or that the temple would help take care of them. But for some reason, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows did not think they were being cared for equally in the distribution of food and whatever else they gave to the widows as the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christian widows. So they complained, and so those early apostles said, all right, and they appointed seven men to help take care of the distribution of food to those widows. And Stephen and Philip are the two biggies there, but there's also a Nicholas that's part of that group. That's all. I mean, that's all I can tell you about that Nicholas. He's listed in that group. Um, so there's some indication that somehow his teaching turns into this false teaching that is a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, there's uncertainty in some of these early Christian writers about whether Nicholas was a false teacher and they just adopted his teaching or it's a group that perverted his teachings. But there's no guarantee it even came from that Nicholas. There could be lots of Nicholas's uh, and it might not be that one who was part of the seven in Acts chapter 6. So we just don't know exactly. But I would guess that the teaching of the Nicolaitans looked a lot like what the Balaamites were teaching. And there's a connection between them that goes beyond that. I think I've done more Greek with you than, I'm nor- than I normally do. The word Nicholas is a compound Greek word and the two Greek words are Nike anybody know what? okay let me say it this way Nike (laughs) sounds a little more familiar if you say it that way that's the goddess of victory I've got a picture next to the probably the most famous image of of, uh, Nike and with her long flowing robes that make a swish like on well, I got on Converse today. That's good. Uh, but if you got on Nike, shame, shame on you. Uh, you're, you're worshiping the goddess Nike. Nah, it's not true. But the name means victory. And laos is the word that means people. So the word means something like victory over the people or conquering the people or something like that. So that's what uh, uh, Nicholas, Nicol, that's where that word comes from. Well, Balaam Now we're talking about Hebrew. It's balaam. That means the same thing in Hebrew. Victory over the people. Conquering the people. So the two names are built off of the one in Hebrew one in Greek. But they mean the same thing. And and the way they're thrown around here, without giving us any indication of what the Nicolaitans believe, but this is all in such a context of idolatry, sexual immorality, identified with idolatry in the pagan temples, that I would think that what it says about the Balaamites, uh, when he talks about they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality, I would guess that the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites were all teaching something that was promoting such things. So I think that's what was going on at Ephesus too, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But for the Ephesians, he said, you hate their teaching. So to their credit, they weren't giving any place to the false teaching at Ephesus. Now they had their problem They'd left their first love, but they weren't giving any space for the false teaching. But now at Pergamum, they're giving place for it. They're allowing it to remain. So what should they do in light of that? Repent. That's what he told the church at Ephesus to do if they've left their first love. So now he says to them, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now there, you know, the he's the one with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's a picture of judgment, capital punishment, of the ultimate punishment. And how about if you don't repent, I'll come to you soon. That sounds like not Jesus appearing in the clouds. That seems like an intermediate visit that is based in judging them for their allowing this false teaching to take root in the church and not uprooting it out. Um, So it's interesting how the way he turns to their correction in verse 14. When he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And it has to do with their putting up with this false teaching. So now we should get a call to hear. That's what should come next. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we should get the motivating promise. Here it is. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, that sounds like something you'd want, some of the hidden manna. Now, we're thrown into Exodus chapter 16. You're going to really need to read the Old Testament to appreciate Revelation because he draws on the Old Testament everywhere. So, now you've got to go back to Exodus 16. You've got the manna that falls from heaven to feed the Israelites. You know, it was white, tasted like, it was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like honey bread. That sounds like something I'd enjoy. Um, and what was the thing about it? it? It came every day till they got into Canaan. Then it stopped. They didn't get anymore. So there's the realization this isn't always going to be falling. But there was also a limitation to it even while God was giving it. you remember what that was? It spoiled at the end of every day. So it was there for the day, but you couldn't save it. Uh, and that re- required you then to be dependent upon God the following day. You couldn't, you couldn't store it away because they would have, and then they would have been felt self-sufficient. Um, but Exodus chapter 16, and actually let's go back there and look at it. I think it's worth, uh, I think it's worth looking at. Exodus chapter 16, verse 30, beginning at verse 31, where he's talking about this, this hidden manna. So verse 31, Exodus 16, 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was, wh- it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer, that's about two liters, I think. I think of a two-liter diet Coke. Take, a, take about two liters of manna. And keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So here's going to be some manna that they're going to keep that's not going to rot or spoil. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put about two liters of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the law. So there's your Ten Commandments. So this is a pretty exclusive little collection of items here. You've got a jar of the manna from heaven. You've got the actual tablets, the original autographs of the Ten Commandments, so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Um, Now here's the rest of that story. So that's like this manna that's now kept... In, in, in the Ark of the Covenant. So you think about what do they put in the Ark of the Covenant that's kept in the temple? It's the hidden manna, it's the Ten Commandments, and it's Aaron's staff or Aaron's rod. I mean, that's some pretty exclusive items there. Think about what you could get on eBay for any of those items. But what happens in 586? The Babylonians come in Invade the city and destroy the temple. 2 Maccabees, now I do not know this to be true, but I know this is now a Jewish tradition because it's in 2 Maccabees, says that Jeremiah took the hidden jar of manna because he knew it was going to, you know, everything was going to be destroyed by the Babylonians and hid it in a cave. So there was this tradition about hidden manna. Now, you can't help, but knowing all that's in the background of this, I think, probably helps us when he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I think that's all the background for it. So what's what's the hidden manna now for this audience? You see a lot in the New Testament that Jesus somehow is like the manna from heaven. When Jesus said, I am the bread... The book of John draws a lot of parallels, I think, between like when he feeds the multitude, in the, when he feeds the 5,000 and feeds the 4,000. I think it's it subtly he's making the, the claim that he is the manna from heaven now. And if you eat from him, you'll never hunger. So what does it mean that you'll eat from the hidden manna? I think it's a way of saying you'll share in the presence of Christ. And it's hidden in the sense that if you don't believe you don't receive it hidden to those who don't believe Uh, like these people who have remained true to his name and have not, not renounced their faith. He also says I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. Now I'm less certain about the white stone and what that means. There's about 12 different pretty good options I think, for this. But I'll, I'll give you one or two. I, I'll, well, the one, I, I, what I think it is, in judicial proceedings, you would vote innocent or guilty with a white or a black stone. When Paul in Acts 26 talks about how he voted against Christians it, when he's describing his persecution of them, that's how he would have voted against them, with a black stone. So you you put the stone, white or black, in, and then they tally up. And if there's more white stones than black, then the person is vindicated. If there's more black stones than white, then they're convicted. So in that kind of judicial image, the white stone would in a sense be God's vote that the person is vindicated. Now, whose name is written on it? I don't know. could be the name of Christ. Or some kind of new name for the believer. But it's not explicit what that is exactly. But this is the way he motivates. Now some of the others, if you won an athletic event, you'd get a white stone. And that white stone would get you into the victor's banquet. Uh, A white stone was used to purchase grain. So there's other possibilities, but I kind of like the judicial uh, image of it. As much as I don't understand it, I'm sure his, uh, this audience knew exactly what he was talking about. But I want to be more cautious. Whatever it is, it's good. The hidden manna, I feel better about. All right, so that's three down, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Let's get Thyatira, and, uh, and we'll be doing okay. So we get our opening. Um, hang on just a second here. I've not quite been following my notes, and I'm getting too much mess up here. All right. To the church at Thyatira. What do you think about the name Jezebel? You like that name? What, what kind of vibe does that name give off? If I just say Jezebel. Wicked I mean, like a little chill up your spine, Just, just, just a little bit wicked, evil, Jezebel. Here's how I know how people feel about Jezebel. I've been teaching for 22 years at OBU. I average a couple hundred students a semester. I've had every name you can imagine, names I can't pronounce. Names I have to give them a nickname because even when they tell me I can't pronounce it. Names I've never heard, not, not once in my life. But not one time have I had a student named Jezebel. Not once in 22 years. Have you, have you ever known someone named Jezebel? <laughs> I wouldn't even name my dog Jezebel. So Somebody that did. That just... It just, uh, there's lots of women who appear in the Old Testament. Not many of them have a, like a top billing, though. You know, they're usually secondary characters. But the ones that do stand out are usually, they stand out for good. Like, who's the first woman that stands out in Scripture that you think about? You might say Eve. She's, Probably Sarah, maybe. Was Sarah a name that stands out to you? Hannah, Miriam, what'd you say? Esther, Ruth. Aren't all these kind of positive names? But how about Jezebel? No good. We meet her in 1 Kings chapter 16. We find out she's a Phoenician princess. Now, Phoenicia is the area of Tyre and Sidon. And if you if you if you know much about Israel's history, they've not Got along well with Tyre and Sidon in, in their history. This is, a, Jesus can use Tyre and Sidon. He said, it'll be worse for you than Tyre and Sidon. This is, this is not a friendly place to Israelites. So you have Ahab who marries this Phoenician princess, and Ahab becomes king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So now you've got a Phoenician princess who marries Ahab, and now she's the queen. Of Israel. And she worships Baal and Asherah. There's Baal, and sort of the feminine version of that is Asherah. And part of the deal in the marriage apparently was she gets to bring her gods with her and the priests of her gods into the, into the marriage. So now you've got Baal worship emanating directly from the royal palace. The writer of Kings says, in 1 Kings 16, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And by the end of this, you're going to see that all of this was incited by his wife, Jezebel. So we meet her in 1 Kings 16. Then in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet Elijah is not getting along very well with these uh, this Baal worship and and these God, these these priests of Baal and Asherah, these prophets of Baal and Asherah, and so he challenges them on Mount Carmel. You remember the the duel there, and of course the God of Elijah s- destroys uh, the gods the, uh, the the gods Baal and Asherah. You know, I mean they're. They've got their sacrifice there, and they're crying out and cutting themselves, and Elijah's sort of poking fun. Oh, your God must be asleep. I wonder where your God is. And then he tells them to dash water on the animal that's there for, to be consumed three different times, and then he just prays, you know, Lord, do your thing, and it's consumed. And then those prophets of Baal, 450, and Asherah, 400, are slaughtered by Elijah that's a victory of God over these pagan gods Um, Jezebel doesn't care much for that and she threatens Elijah that within you know like 24 hours he'll be dead and he gets all freaked out about it which is surprising in light of the big victory he just had but that's how it goes and then in 1 Kings 9 by the way he doesn't die But then 1 Kings 19, so that's 1 Kings 18. Then you turn around to 1 Kings 19, 20, 21. There's another scene where Ahab falls in love with a nice little piece of land owned by Naboth, a vineyard. And so he goes to Naboth and tries to purchase it, and Naboth won't, you know, this is family land, I just couldn't sell it. And, and you can almost imagine the negotiations. Well, sure you can. Everybody's got their price. And Naboth says, no, I really don't. And he really didn't. And so Ahab you know, sort of slumps back to the palace. And Jezebel comes in. And well, what's wrong with the king? And he says, well, I wanted this man's vineyard, but he won't sell it to me. And She says, well, I, pff, I can take care of that. So she hatches a plan. He ends up getting stoned to death. And they just take his property. And uh, Elijah didn't like that much either. And so uh, there's this, it's prophesied that they're both gonna die gruesome deaths, and they both do. But Jezebel's the one we're interested in. So when you get to 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is going to now be king. So this is good news. This is gonna be good. They, they wanted done with these uh, worshipers of Baal. They were ready for a king, and Jehu's the king, and there's enthusiasm about it. Well, he comes into Jezreel, the city of Jezreel, comes in the gates of the city of Jezreel. And Jezebel is up on an upper floor looking out from, I guess, her bedroom, her bedchamber. And her servants end up throwing her out as Jehu pulls up, and his uh, chariot just rolls over her but he doesn't do it. he just goes in and eats he then gets out goes in to eat leaves her out there bleeding her blood had splattered on the wall Saul all seemed to be fulfilling what the prophet had said and while he's in there feasting the dogs are feasting on her and nothing is left except skull, palms of her hands and, and uh, her heel that's it Jezebel and as I said 1 Kings twenty-one twenty-five, the writer of Kings comments that all the evil Ahab did was incited by his wife Jezebel she represents more than anyone else in scripture the willingness to compromise your faith with other faiths with other deities with other gods um She brings Baal into the royal palace of Israel. She shows the syncretism of of the faith of the Israelites with Baal and Asherah. She represents that, the willingness to compromise faith in the true God with false gods. And the spirit of Jezebel was alive and well at Thyatira. To the angel of the church at Thyatira, write. Thyatira is not particularly known for anything. It's not one of the larger cities. It's not particularly cosmopolitan. It's not particularly trade significant. But here's what was significant about Thyatira. It was known for its trade guilds. Now, you might not know the phrase trade guild, but you know what a labor union is. And these were like ancient labor unions. But they weren't like labor unions where you go down for a meeting at the labor office you know this is these trade guilds were rooted in idolatry and there would be deities associated with different trades and so once again we're back to idolatry and so you'd go and you'd pay homage to certain deities and this would you know by participating in the worship of these deities at these trade guilds it would enhance your business. I mean, the, wh- the whispers would be, if you don't participate, you're not going to be successful in business. You're not going to get any of the breaks. You're not going to get uh, recommendations. So you've got to participate. And the pressure would have been there. So this is a blue-collar town. This is a town of bakers and tanners. And um, you can imagine all the different kinds of trades that you might find. Um, linen makers and wool makers and, and they were particularly known for their indigo. This deep blue purple-like coloring that they added to linens and wool. Do you remember the first convert on European soil in, in Acts chapter 16? Her name is Lydia. And do you know what, she, what, her, what she's identified with? She's a seller of purple garments. Do you remember where she's from? Thyatira. That's all in Acts chapter 16. So it all fits together, and here we are in this city, this blue-collar town, with these trade unions. So these are the words to the church at Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Both of those taken directly from the vision that we had uh, in chapter 1. So here is the affirmation. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and endurance, and that you're now doing more than you did at the first. Do you see how they're like the opposite of the church at Ephesus, who over time loved less, and now he says of them, you're doing more than you did at the first, so that's the way it should be. And we should not underestimate the value of a church that's doing something. I know, he says. This is the one with blazing eyes. I know. When he says, I know, he knows. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your your service, your endurance. I mean, this is a church that's doing something, that's that's sort of going somewhere. This is a very strong affirmation. Uh, that they're works and they have faith and they have love and they have service. They're willing to serve one another. The willingness that, it's diakoneia, it's the word which, which we get our word deacon, it just means servant. The willingness to wait upon and serve others is part of the life of this church. And I just came in the side door this morning. When I got here, I parked over on the side. For some reason I've fallen into that and I just come in and come in the side doors there and walk up to the front. And that's when I get my mic and talk to people up near the front. That's just what I do when I come here on Sunday morning. Um, but I was at Quail Springs for a year, and I was interim there. So i come in different doors, and I'd try to see different people because I was there every Sunday. And it, it's amazing the number of volunteers that you'll see on a Sunday morning at a church. For them, they've got a door you can drive up, and it's got a covering over it, and, and that people there's some men there who'll park your car. It's like valet parking. The people handing out the, the bulletins. Uh, there's people there bringing donuts, and you can't underestimate those people. Um, in fact, there was a Sunday school class that met next to the kind of in the, in the offices area next to the pastor's office, which I was using, and uh, they brought me. Uh, two donuts every Sunday morning. I think Hans told me he lost, was, had lost 10 pounds about six months after he left there, and, and I found them. And uh, I, I think it, it had something to do with those two donuts. Now, they thought they were giving me two in case one of my sons came with me, uh, which they often did. So there'd be a donut for each of us. But often nobody came with me, and I'm sitting there staring at Two donuts. But you just, and there were people, they had three services. So there was people who would show up at the 815 service just to sing in the choir, but they actually came to the 930 or the 11 o'clock service, and often the 11 o'clock service, so they'd come to the 815, sing in the choir, go to Sunday school at 930, and then come to their service, which was at 11, sing in the choir again. I mean, the more you look around, you see these people who are volunteering their, their service. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And this must be what he knows about this church. They're, they're filled with those kinds of people who are willing to volunteer their time and their service. And he speaks of their endurance. So that's the affirmation. It's good. Now, how about the correction? Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Now think about Jezebel, who's leading people into sexual immorality, this prophet. I don't know whether there's actually a prophetess, a woman prophet there whose name is Jezebel or he's just calling her Jezebel likely the latter but she's inciting sexual immorality that happens on a bed the judgment is oh I'm going to put her on a bed all right, but it's a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways I will strike her children dead now I think he's making a distinction there between those who May tolerate Jezebel's teaching or who may be intrigued by it versus those who have given all into it and aren't coming back. On one, there's intense suffering, on the other, death. I mean, this is the God, you know, with the sharp two edged sword coming out of his mouth. And so here's my concern how does this look like? How does this play out in some sort of modern situation or setting? I think there is the temptation for all kinds of compromise of our faith in ways that would parallel with this Jezebel image. Here's how I think it would work. The spirit of Jezebel says things like, there's truth in other religions. If someone has faith and they're committed to their religion, whatever it is, even if it denies Jesus, that's okay. I think that's... One version of sort of a compromise in your faith that there are lots of faiths and they're all sort of on the same spiritual journey and if you believe something strongly enough if you have faith enough and whatever you believe even if it's contrary to Christianity God will be merciful to those that sounds like the kind of the spirit of Jezebel you can almost hear hear her whispering that I think Jezebel would be what we might think of as a seasoned spin doctor who can make compromise make sense. I think she might say things like, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you, you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, God wants you to be healthy. So we can be driven by the desire for more, more land, more stuff, more money, more goods. You know, like, kind of like Ahab coveting Naboth's vineyard. And she's willing to do whatever is necessary to make that happen. That kind of compromise that you can serve God and mammon. And I'd mention another one. The kind of compromise we make on sexuality. I think culture has created boundaries. Here's what we say. We say culture is responsible for the sexual boundaries that we have in the world. And so in the first century, the Bible's reflecting a first century attitude towards like homosexuality or sexual morality, even if heterosexual. And so now, in an enlightened age we live in now, now we know so much more about how homosexuality can be rooted in uh, genetic, some sort of genetic predisposition and all of this, uh, that somehow we should now expand the boundaries of sexuality from what scripture teaches. I think that's the kind of compromise that Jezebel whispers. So that seeing sexuality, rather than seeing it as a gift of God, we treat it like it's our toy for our personal pleasure. So now sexual relations are not something that comes as a result of a marriage where you have a person committed to the other person, a man and a woman where they're demonstrating something of the love of Christ for the church in their marital relationship, now it's not that anymore. Now it's something for my personal pleasure and my personal fulfillment. That's what sexual relations become. So once it becomes about that, now let's say your wife or your girlfriend is pregnant. And you've decided that it's going to limit your personal freedom well, then it makes a lot of sense to think we can just have an abortion. You can see how that way of thinking about things stems from readjusting the boundaries uh, of sexual relationships and what marriage is and what are the boundaries of marriage. And um, I think the voice of Jezebel still speaks, and we still are susceptible to it. And so, past all the judgment of you of it, verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. You know, I can imagine uh, the prophet tests Jezebel saying, I know the deep secrets of God. You know, I, I think Jezebel probably still has her conferences and sells her books and shows up on TV whispering the same things. I know the deep secrets. And here he says, those of you who've not bought into Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my father. You really need to read Psalm 2, 8 and 9 in conjunction with that. But it is the promise that we will in some way rule with God. I will also give that one the morning star. We find out in Revelation twenty two sixteen that Jesus is the bright and morning star. I will give you the morning star. Whoever has ears to let them hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I think the uh, best way to end is just with that simple phrase. What does the Spirit have to say to the churches?